0: to When We Speak, where we shed stigmas, say goodbye to shame, strengthen ourselves, and encourage others. I am your host, Tasha Hunter. This is a podcast where I am blending the intersections of race, gender, sexuality, faith, and trauma. If there is a topic that most people say we're not supposed to talk about, I'm talking about it. Because that is how we heal. We don't heal in silence, we heal by speaking out. So today I have with me Andre Henry. Andre, you didn't know this, but I used to follow you back when I had Twitter. I don't have Twitter anymore because it was such a distraction for me. But I became familiar with you when I purchased your shirt. Let's see. It doesn't have to be this way. Wow. Okay. And I wore that damn shirt everywhere and I still do. (laughs) And it's just my reminder it really doesn't have to be this way. Like we can be better, like seriously. So (laughs) I want to, um, I guess before we really get started, have you uh, introduce yourself to listeners.
1: Sure. Um, Hi, I'm Andre. Um, I'm a writer and musician and an activist with the Deep Passion for Racial Justice trying to help people understand how ordinary people can work together to change the world through collective action.
0: And Andre, I know that you're here to like talk about your book, but really, I just wanted to have you on because I just really wanted to brag about your book. Like, I know you could tell from my messages that I just loved it so much. And then while I'm thinking about it, we have a mutual acquaintance. Well, she's my sister and my, one of my best friends, but Letty Gore. Oh, Letty El- yes. Shout out to Letty Elizabeth. Yes, <laughs> I love her. So yeah, so so that's when I became familiar with you. And I don't read a lot of books by, by men, those who identify as, as male. Yes. Uh, but reading this from somebody who is... Not just male, but a but a black man. It just touched my heart so much. So I want to say thank you for like putting it putting your story out there.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, you know, really thank you for reading it. I really appreciate you know you taking the time to do that and getting it and having me on to talk about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So the one of the things that that caught my attention immediately was in your the first chapter, and you're talking about growing up. Uh, with your grandmother and uh, watching televangelists and them talking, you know, always preaching this fire and brimstone way of preaching about the end times. Uh-huh. And it occurred to me immediately, Andre, that it has been such a number of years since I left church and have been on this deconstruction journey and all of that. I have not heard anybody say that we're, at the end of days
1: and I don't even remember how many years <laughs> I mean I don't I don't hear people talk about like the end times anymore either I'm way removed from you know that kind of world now but um, yeah that I mean I grew up when you know left behind was you know the the popular book series yeah. and they have movies and you know um yeah, it was kind of all over the place. I mean, I think of it kind of as a little bit of a hysteria. You know, this idea that Jesus was going to come back any moment now. Right. And that, you know, we need to be watching world events so that we're ready.
0: Well, that is the thing that kept my little black ass at the altar. <laughs> that fear kept me praying like, Lord, please let me make it through another watch night service. Uh <laughs> For those that don't know about watch night service, that is New Year's Eve service. It's what we did in the traditional church to bring in the new year.
1: Mm.
0: Andre, did you ever have to go to watch night service?
1: Um, I didn't have to. I mean, I, I loved going to church when I was little, and my family's mm-hmm. not. So, I, I mean, I definitely spent many New Year's Eves in church when I was younger. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That it's been a number of years since I've felt that kind of fear of I hope I'm good enough to make the cut kind of fear mm-hmm. on page 25. And I'm going to turn to it uh-huh. and you talk about being the the token black guy. Yeah. And for those of us who have ever been in predominantly white um, circles, white community, we know what it means to be a token and what we have to compromise in order to be in these relationships, which your whole book is about all the things that were compromised Mm -hmm. when you're in these spaces and in relationships with people who are not black. And so can you talk a little bit about some of the things that, Maybe early on you realized some of the things that you realized that you had to compromise in
1: order to just be yeah. this relationship. Yeah. So like I explained in the book, I feel like the gaslighting effect, you know, it, it worked for, you know, to an extent on me, you know, where I internalized uh, the miseducation that white people try to subject us to about, you know, race, about blackness, about whiteness, all that kind of stuff. Right. And so. I mean, I wasn't completely fooled. I knew that racism was an issue because I lived next to a Klansman growing up. You know, and he pulled a gun on my brother for walking our dog through the neighborhood. He harassed us all the time. I lived in Stone Mountain where the largest Confederate monument in the country is. You know, I, I knew that that kind of racism existed. But uh, there was a lot that I just didn't really understand. A ton that I just really didn't understand. I had all of this kind of cognitive dissonance going on but um like I mentioned in the book I was kind of adopted not not formally well more like we adopted them I kind of adopted this white family as a part of my extended family at the church stone
0: family is that um, yeah Mm -hmm.
1: and um (laughs) everybody when they mention the stones I hear so much uh, disdain in their voice (laughs) everybody is giving the stones a side eye um Okay, so I kind of adopted the Stones as part of my extended family, and they're all white. So, you know, when I'm out with them and their friends, you know, because I was friends with their children and their children had mostly white friends. And as I grew up as a teenager, when, you know, we all got cars, when I hung out with my friends from school, we all black people. But when I hung out with my friends from church, you know, I tended to be the only black person. You know, we'd go out and eat at Chili's, and they listen to their alternative Christian music on the way, all that kind of stuff, right? And I just kind of blended in, you know, as best I could, which meant I listened to the music they listened to, and I kind of dressed the way that they dressed to an extent, you know. And my life as a Jamaican, as the children of Jamaican immigrants, didn't really come into that space very often, you know, like. We never, we never went out for Jamaican food or listened to reggae music on our on our way anywhere. We never talked about what my favorite artists on MTV or VH1 or V103 were doing or singing about. None of that was ever there. And I didn't even realize that I was code switching that way. You know, uh, I had no idea I was even code switching. I didn't even have that language. I wouldn't have that language until I was an adult. Um... But there were times even as a young person that I would realize that I recognized um, that I could not really bring my full self into that space. I remember one memory I didn't write in the book, but I remember I had to be about nine or 10 years old. We had kids camp every summer. We went out there and, you know, like I said, my parents are Jamaican and they took us back to Jamaica every other year. In fact, my mother had been taking me back to Jamaica since I was a baby. There are pictures of me as a baby in Jamaica. that I don't even remember being there because I was so young. So anyway, um, I also wrote about in the book how I discovered Bob Marley's music in my mother's vinyl collection. And I listened to Bob Marley religiously. I listened to Bob Marley every day. So when we went to Jamaica... I went to a souvenir shop and I saw this this Bob Marley cap and I just had to have it. I'm like, Mom, Mackie, please, can I just have this hat? And she bought me this cap and I wore it to Kids Camp. And one of the one of the stones actually was there actually. And um, someone asked me who's Bob Marley, and so. I started to answer who Bob Marley was because Bob Marley was my hero. He still is, you know, in many ways. But as a kid, I found out that Bob Marley was a singer-songwriter, and that made me want to be a singer-songwriter. And Bob Marley sang about justice, and I wanted to sing about justice, right? And um, so I started to open my mouth to tell them who Bob Marley was, and this white adult just, just preempted my answer completely interjected completely interrupt and just started like he's this ganja smoking da 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 blah, blah 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 as though the only thing that there is to know about Bob Marley is that he smoked marijuana and as though there's something morally reprehensible about smoking marijuana right now those kinds of experiences would happen a lot and if I tried to name any of those experiences as I feel like y'all treat black people differently than these white people would say oh you're playing the race card Right, racism is a serious accusation. All that kind of stuff, all the kind of gaslighting. So, you know, that's I brought all of that up to say, like, there was that kind of policing that I think trained me to know that when I'm around white people, I have to be a certain way, right? You know, I, I I I played the role of the safe, respectable Negro around them, right? so much so that I forgot that I was playing a role. I actually thought I was a safe, respectable Negro for years. <laughs> Maybe I was. <laughs> you
0: know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, as, as before you even finish that story, I was thinking, oh, you you talking about Bob Marley in front of a whole bunch of white people? Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. getting ready to take your joy from you. Like, they, they're <laughs> getting ready to <laughs> <laughs> They're about to snatch it <laughs> They're about to snatch Your joy from you Oh my gosh It, I didn't you know, know it, it all makes time. me think about a uh, Comedian, actress um, mus- Music Artist, I don't know if, if she would Go by that, but Amanda Seals Yes yeah. And in one of her really old podcast Episodes, she has like there's white people there and there's white people, people that just happen to be white. Yes, yes. And you it. was talking to some real white folk. Yep.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh
0: yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I, so uh, when when I hear you say you know not having the language, Andre, I experience some of the same things, and we just don't have the language, and we're not even aware of right. how anti-blackness has been instilled in us.
1: Uh huh. Yes. In us, I love that you mentioned in us as Black people, all of that us, been-
0: and being that that good Black Negro, right? Uh, you go go to church, mm-hmm. you know. You serve the Lord, you follow the rules, you don't get in any trouble. You're respectful. Mm-mm. You 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 give the shirt off of your back. You <laughs> do everything that you can for other people. You adopt their interest as your interest. Yes. Uh, immerse yourself in whatever the culture is, you know, within the the people that that you're around. Yeah. And you think, oh yeah, you know, I love everybody, love uh, seeing the uh-huh. no color. Yeah, yeah. And then you had, and I'm just telling your story. Please tell me to shut up, whatever. No. But but then as I'm reading the book, then I'm like, oh, your awakening was Eric Garner. Like, like that wasn't your awakening, awakening, but it sounded like as I was reading it, that was when you were like, okay, I can't take this anymore.
1: Yeah. You know, there were there were moments before then where I would try to say something in college. Right. I remember the Gina six. You remember them? Yes.
0: Yes. Mm -hmm.
1: I remember being livid about the Gina six. And I remember Saying I was I was working at Southeastern University in Lakeland, Florida, and I remember standing in the office. It's all white people that work in this office. And I remember standing in that office saying this would not have happened to them if they were white. Right. I remember that moment. And I remember the way the man that I call Garth Humphrey later in the book, Uh the way that he stormed out of his office Even with his body language as like he was going to shut me down, right? Even physically if he had to. Now, I don't think that he would have actually physically attacked me, but you could see in his body language that he had been activated in that way. I remember being profiled by the security guards at Southeast University being stopped and accused of, you know, stealing my own bike because I quote unquote didn't look like a student to them, you know. And I remember saying to people at Southeastern, I feel like this is Babylon. You know, I feel like because, you know, in the story of Daniel, you know, all the Shadrach, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that that wasn't their names. Their mama didn't get in them names or the Babylonian names. Right. (laughs) and uh you know the when they were when they were assimilated into the babylonian empire i didn't have the language of assimilation yet but that's what i was saying is that i feel like y'all want me to become white i didn't have the language for that that's what i was trying to say but the gaslighting no 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 so when i was in new york the moment that you're talking about with eric garner people weren't doing that to me in new york you know when i saw stuff like that in New York. People were not accusing me of playing the race card and all this other kind of stuff. I mean, people were basically like, yeah. Yeah, man, that cabbie who... Was driving by when you were trying to hail a cab and yelled at you that they not going to Brooklyn, <laughs> that's racist. That landlord that refused to rent to you after he saw you, after he offered you the place on the phone, mm-hmm. that was racism. You know, like they were helping me to name these things. And I got all these language, this language, and I appreciate I wanna point this out and I appreciate, you know, at the top of the show, you're saying you saying usually don't read books by black men. That it was men a-
0: period, not just black men
1: men yeah, men period. <laughs> but there was a group of black women at my church that, Pulled together an event about whiteness. I believe I wrote about this in the book. You know, that it was a group of black women at my church that pulled together an an event about whiteness, and that event changed my life. If those black women had not pulled that event together, maybe I would have learned this stuff later on, but that's not how the story happened. I learned this was after the murder of Eric Garner, where I was livid, and I sat in my office. Or, not really, I didn't have an office, I had a cubicle. So I was like at the church with my guitar in my hand, you know, singing a song that I wouldn't release for years later. But I just have to emphasize again, I know I've already said it two or three times, but there were three black women at this church. They knew what this was, you know, they knew what systemic racism was. And they pulled together an event to help contextualize this for the for people at the church who wanted to go and and they 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 introduced me to language and concepts that helped me understand what I was experiencing helped me understand my life
0: so shout out so to, shout black
1: out to women. yes <laughs> <laughs> you know, so shout out to them to Natasha and Paulette and Allie you know I will always be indebted to them
0: yeah all the white friends I couldn't keep is the name of the book
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I just knew from the title I said everybody needs to read this down I hadn't even read it yet <laughs> Like I knew that the truth was Was going to be <laughs> I, I just knew that that what I, I, All the whites and I, Because I started listing mentally listing All of my own white Friends that I had to let go of Right To save myself And so I want to ask you in the writing of your book Did you have any fears related to how are people that I may be referencing in the book going to feel about it? Or how are people that I'm in communication with or in relationship with now, how are they going to feel about
1: this? How is this going to be received? No, not one bit. (laughs) Not one bit. I I do not care. You know what? Some of them somehow... See, I want to. Be, I need to be a little bit nicer. Some of them are somehow still connecting me on social media. And they congratulate me about the book. I'm like, I don't know why you say congratulations. And they read it. And they might recognize themselves. And I hope that they'll do more than be offended, which is what I expect. But I hope they'll do more than be offended if they see themselves in the book. Because they didn't listen to at the time when I was trying to tell them these things. So and the reason why I don't I didn't feel fear about that is because I knew that I wasn't writing the book to them or really even about them. You know, like they are supporting characters for the story, Mm -hmm. the book. okay. so there's a why, right? Like, why couldn't you keep them? And it's because I once I started to wake up out of the gaslighting effect, I started to realize that there's a lot of work to be done for our, for our liberation. And I, I threw myself into just trying to understand strategies that have worked before. And these white people were trying to stop me. <laughs> they, were, they were trying to stop me from doing the work of, of learning this information, of speaking up about my experiences, of organizing with other people that's why they weren't capable. So, you know, when I wrote the book, oh sorry, I want to say just a tab more about that. I found so much information on this journey that I felt like why don't why doesn't everybody know this? You know, why isn't this more common sense for us? And I wanted to write a book to give everybody that information. Right? And it's kind of crazy cuz I thought about this this morning that um The same way that on the individual level, which is why I wrote the book the way that I did, memoir and manifesto, is that the same way on the individual level, white people try to stand in the way of us being our best black selves and us being free as individuals. That there is a systemic way that the white world that we live in tries to keep us from organizing for our liberation, right? seeing it now with the CRT hysteria and the book banning and the so trying to keep the Supreme Court white and Donald Trump trying to run for president again all kind of stuff so I really didn't care like I'm like listen if the Stones read this book and they're mad I don't care because there's so there's something so much bigger being done there's something so much bigger uh being done through this book and I wanted especially For black people to have this information you know and so yeah i I found out by the time i finished the book proposal that i did not want to write this book for white people i was so exhausted trying to write this book when i thought i was going to write it to white people but then when i shift the angle and i realized that i wanted to write the book that i needed as a black man eight years ago again emphasizing Paulette and Natasha and Allie, they gave me the on-ramp to my political awakening. Meanwhile, black men, support for Donald Trump went up amongst black men between 2016 and 2020. You know, what's the deal? And we, I don't have to tell you, you know, like one of the things. Okay, so I think I might have a tad bit of an advantage here. In the sense that I'm not interested in manhood, you know, so, you know, masculinity never fit me well. So, you know, I'm at the point where I'm not ready to wear any necessarily labels publicly, but I'm processing a lot of things where, you know, I understand that man, how did I, I, somebody explain this perfectly earlier and I'm going to butcher it. I can't remember. But in many ways, like I uh, manhood is a performance. Masculinity is a performance. Right. So it, it is not biological. It's not something that is a biological fact about me. And, you know, so I think that there might be a tad bit of an advantage to that for me to, You know, it's not that I've never been toxic, but you know that I think it was a little bit easier for me to see some of these things. And when I took that on ramp, starting to see the the ways that all kinds of oppressions are connected. Right. I felt like when I thought about black men in particular, (laughs) we tend to be behind the curve on these conversations. Someone was talking to me yesterday and was like, where are the black straight men in this conversation? And I was like, black straight men, Tasha, let me tell you something. So I've been, I am around regular niggas again. Not social justice niggas, not activist niggas, not woke niggas, just regular niggas. And from, I know that my social circle is a small sample size, but from my observation, The brothers are not talking about liberation.
0: Speak on it. Say it one more time, please.
1: The brothers are not talking about liberation. We're not talking about liberation. Now, some of us think that we want to be free. And the way that we're talking about freedom is about, you know, getting money, right? getting money and don't even get started when we start talking about black women and i'm not trying to do this in a performative way i just this is just honest i'm i'm trembling as i say this because i don't feel like i'm an example i'm just trying to be honest you know like when we talk about black freedom a lot of black men seem to think that the patriarchy will set us free And that's why I felt like... And there are a lot of black women that believe that too because of the internalized patriarchy, right? You know, so I felt like I wanted to write a book to us because we have been so miseducated about strategies for social progress and the information has not reached many of us. And the crazy thing about it, Tasha, and then I'll shut up for a second is that so many movements around the world have looked to our past movements for guidance. Meanwhile, many of us have been so internalized the white lies, (laughs) pun intended, (laughs) you know, the white lies that we've been indoctrinated in to where it's like, there's just so many barriers to us participating in our own movements for freedom is what I'm saying.
0: Listen, I am here for everything that you were saying. Every single part of it. You know, when you talked about even manhood. It's a fucking social construct. Yeah. Created by who? Yeah. We didn't create it. Yeah. So, so... Anytime I am hearing A person talk about What it means to be Quote-unquote man Oh, this is what it looks like To be a good woman mm. A good American citizen mm-hmm. All of that personhood Womanhood, manhood Those are social constructs mm-hmm. And until black people And by black people I really mean black men mm-hmm. Understand that, and choose to. Um, as I'm thinking about my friend Kina Reed, divest from that. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then we're gonna stay behind, right? Then we're gonna stay under the quote unquote master's thumb,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? Because we're still holding on to these these labels and or these definitions of this is what we should aspire to be, right? right right i could just hug you right now like <laughs> you're speaking my language
1: <laughs> you know i i mean i say ashe to all of that you know ashe and ashe because it's like you said like what i've have found in many conversations and i know not all black men are like this but i'm just saying again i'm around regular niggas <laughs> you know i have my woke brothers that i'm around you know and those are those are my comrades right yeah. but when i'm around you know just regular niggas like we're just not having these conversations and there's so many misconceptions about nonviolent struggle <clears throat> um and it's like there is this pervasive notion that what Black people need to be free is to have more um, masculinity, more male leadership. You know, more, more of the kind of like traditional uh, nuclear family setup. You know, these are the conversations that we have, and it's not that I'm against Black families. I think it's chapter twelve. I get into Black love or something like that. You know, That's
0: chapter thirteen is on Black love.
1: <laughs> get it right okay
0: (laughs) let me just show you like (laughs) I'm showing Andre the pages of like his book there's so much highlighting underlining this is chapter 13 can you see that my, oh, that's
1: your favorite chapter? Yes. Okay, let me tell you what. So, you get what I was saying. I'm just saying, like, I felt like we needed an intervention, you know, and I'm hoping that this book can encourage those of us at varying levels of internalized anti blackness. Um, or hopelessness. That's another thing too. Like it's just I. I mean Fanon. Not that we need Fanon to say this, but I appreciate how Fanon points this out in um, A Dying Colonialism about how colonialism wants to like keep this culture of hopelessness and resignation. <clears throat> I'm hoping to do that. Okay, I just want to throw that out there because now I want to tell you the Black Love chapter is actually the one I was afraid of writing that's that was the one I was like so nervous about it you know first off the the I had an editor help me with my book proposal and he almost well he didn't almost he just wanted me to delete the chapter altogether he he thought that it didn't belong in the book and I'm like see you think that you might think that because you're a white male you don't understand that we can't talk about this without talking about black love, (laughs) you know, we can't have a conversation about what it means for us to be free without at least broaching the subject. They're, 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 they're intertwined. But I was like, first off, I'm, I'm, I'm confessing to some stuff I'm not proud of. And, uh, I'm not sure how it'd be received. So I'm, I'm glad that it's your favorite chapter. (laughs)
0: Listen, it is the most important chapter
1: in my opinion. Really? Tell me more. I want to hear it.
0: <laughs> I think it's the most important chapter because I had a visceral, like my body, I could feel your words as you were describing each relationship that you had been in. Mm-hmm. And and specifically in relationships with people who are in the that that POC part of BIPOC like that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> or that IPOC mm-hmm. <laughs> those <laughs> relationships with, with the IPOC <laughs> and right you, you know yeah it sounds good to say BIPOC but we're not really all together like that yeah, and when right. it comes to people who are who are brown yeah, we don't talk enough about how we really should be together but in these so many moments when you know if when it relates to like the black struggle, I find myself asking, "Where are you?" To my APOC people. Yeah. Are you, yeah. Where you? Where? We're struggling over here. Uh-huh. Where you at? Yeah. Where? Where? Where were you? Mhm.
1: Mhm.
0: When Eric Garner? Yeah. And Tamir, and Trayvon, and fucking Trump.
1: Mm-hmm. All of that. -hmm.
0: In all the things that we continue to go through, yeah, where are you? Mm -hmm. Because fucking us (sighs) isn't enough.
1: Let's talk about it. (laughs) Let me really, real talk. The fact
0: that you can have intimate relationships with us does not mean that you are not anti-black. Right. And also dealing with your own even anti-brownness, right? Because of white supremacy. Yes, yes. And so that's why this chapter meant so much to me because it really named this is what we have to compromise. It's being in relationship with people who are black, who are who are brown, or who are white. Uh-huh. And while they may accept us on one end, they absolutely have no idea what we're really experiencing and they're not even prepared to advocate to speak up mm. to to bear arms I guess with us. Yeah. Most of the time.
1: <laughs> Am I making sense, Andre? This? Oh absolutely, absolutely. And um, you know, like,
0: like I, I wanna be like equal opportunity. I want to be. <laughs> I want to love everybody and for yeah. the most part I do yeah but if you can't with your chest with your chest show me that black lives matter to you yeah right then we can't be in community together we can't be in relationship together you calling me your friend is not enough yeah you being in an intimate relationship with me is not enough you adopting that black or brown child is not enough
1: right 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 you know, initially, the, the chapter, the title of that chapter was Mixed Babies Won't Save Us. <laughs> that was a that was a that was initially the chapter title and I changed it. Nobody told me to change it. I changed it just because I don't know. I felt like how black love became important to me would signal would be more clear to black readers what this chapter is about. Right. Um but a, a, a part of the larger part of this book is I'm trying to t- I'm literally trying to attack misconceptions about social progress. I'm trying to take things off the table for people. And one of those things that people think is on the table as a strategy for liberation is mixed babies. Um, and so that's why I felt like we needed to get into the fact that. When we talk about anti-blackness, it does it does appear in these intimate relationships. When you are with someone who doesn't understand your experience, you know, or not even necessarily understand, because I realize you don't always have to understand to be in solidarity. You don't actually have to understand, you know. but when you're with someone who is not really in solidarity with with you as a as your whole self as your, you know which includes like your collective struggle you know you can be in a situation where you still experience microaggressions you still experience you know violence you know and all that kind of stuff but you know as i'm talking with you tasha i'm processing so much about this in this moment i don't know when you're going to re- release this but So much has happened because, okay, you know, first off, when I wrote this chapter, I had to think of all of my sisters who are married to white men. And I'm not saying that critically, I had to think about them because some people like to give them the side eye without really thinking about the entire social context that, you know, that creates that kind of situation right and so like what i'm not gonna do is write a chapter that undermines their love because those sisters you know are still going hard for black liberation regardless they call their white husbands out online you know but the thing that i'm processing as i'm saying this is i had a conversation with my friend rachel she's a dear friend rachel and i have been friends since we were nine years old (laughs) <laughs> so we've been friends our whole lives And Rachel is single uh, Man if you're listening Listen Rachel is a catch Okay listen If you got a job You've not cheated on your on any of your previous partners Or whatever Hit me up I might introduce you to her um, So Rachel and I were talking And I can't remember how it came up but she meant she said you know black women will die single some black women will die single before they marry outside the race and it's not like i didn't know that but sometimes people say something just a certain way in a conversation you just feel the weight of it and i was like damn damn yes that's so true that's a fact that
0: is a fact
1: it's so true and then the other context around that that made it land so heavy was earlier that day i had seen t.i confront some uh a a woman comedian um in atlanta like on stage and the way that he was acting with her just it seemed so unnerving so disturbing you know what i mean like because his body language and the way his his language, you know, the profanity and you know all this kind of stuff, and shutting her down and interrupting her show because it has some kind of conflict. And I'm looking at this and I'm going, man, this looks it looks very patriarchal. And we know Ti is kind of that way, right? Like the way he talks about his daughters and all kind of stuff. This feels very patriarchal. No one is intervening. No one is. You see this man. You see this man kind of come to the stage and he's very timid. And I know. You know what? I'm saying it and I always want to make sure I'm I'm not placing myself above anyone. I have also been in the presence of men acting very problematic and feeling very timid about I want to confront this person. But I literally don't know how in this moment. I want to do more than nothing, but I don't know the something that I should do. And I see this man at the edge of the stage who clearly is in the same position that I just described. He wants to interrupt T.I., but he doesn't know what to do. Right. And then I think of Will Smith, and i think of how will smith walked up on stage and slapped chris rock in the face for talk for joking about his wife's alopecia, alopecia and how everyone had an opinion and all that on that and stuff like that and i'm like yes but he did something <laughs> right like If the choice is laugh at your wife's alopecia in front of millions of people or smack the dude in the face, smacking the dude in the face is the better choice. You know, is it the best choice? I don't know, but it's better than laughing along with with other people. So anyway, I'm processing all of this while Rachel tells me. I mean, I'm getting choked up talking about it when Rachel tells me there are many black women who would die single before marrying outside the race, I don't know. That's just sitting heavy on me because sometimes I do feel like, as a black man, you know, I, uh, most of my most of my close friends are queer. You know, so when they talk about black cis men, you know, it's it's almost like they're talking about white people, right? And so sometimes, as a person who does not always, it's not always obvious how disinterested I am in masculinity and manhood. Sometimes I feel like, man, like, don't nobody like us? And I really had to... And you know what really hit me was like, nah, Andre, Black women like you. Black women like us. (laughs) And that's why it hit me so heavy.
0: Andre, I have thought about this over and over. Like, the thing that you said that Rachel said, like, that so many of my Black friends are single, have been single for years. Yes. They want a Black man, like, they can tell you specifically like this is what I want in my future husband and my future partner but oftentimes it has felt for me and for my black friends that black men aren't really checking for us in the way that white folks ain't really checking for us
1: mm-hmm.
0: some of my friends who, who are single like they're, they're they're really having this debate of well maybe you should like get online or maybe I should like you know just kind yeah. of you, you know open up to other possibilities of you know loving someone who's not black and yeah. um it's the, it, it's not their first choice but they want to be loved and they want to belong yes who doesn't want to be loved and want to belong
1: absolutely
0: now there are sometimes some compromises that have to be made in these relationships and that's what you talk about and I want to go back to something that you said I've got most of the damn chapter highlighted (laughs) so I had to find it but (laughs) when you highlight everything it makes it hard to find (laughs) the part that was important but uh, because it was also important but you one of my favorite lines is where you say too often people who think they're non-racist mistake necrophilia for genuine love Mm -hmm. And I almost threw this damn book across the room when I read it. (laughs) The (laughs) necrophilia. Like, I just understood that. (laughs) You're fetishizing me. Yeah, You don't really love me. Yes. Yes. I'm an object for your enjoyment, for your pleasure.
1: I can't tell you how many times. You know, I feel like, okay, I have never, never have I ever Made any kind of racial comment to a non-black person? I mean, any person, but a non-black woman that I've dated, I've never been like, you know, I've never, I've never commented on any. Okay, I mentioned that I had a Chinese-American girlfriend at at, at the time. One, like, I never mentioned her skin tone or the shape of her eyes or the, you know, the the thickness of her hair, like, there, you know. But I, I can't tell you how many times. You know, I've talked to a non-black woman, and they've been like, "I've heard men of your complexion are well endowed," or, you know, my or they have to say, you know, something like "my chocolate man," right, or someone, you know, like, you know, like they they, they do that, you know. And um, the things that I describe in in that chapter, like the like the woman who kept saying the N word with me, and I'm like, "Come on now, like, right." not only do you know but you also know what I do like you know right. I'm a racial justice ab- advocate and you over here saying nigga like you wanted a nigga nigga you can't say nigga <laughs> you know <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> like, but you 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 answered that as well because you say on page 216 of my book if anybody. Uh, is <laughs> um you know you say they do these things for the pleasure of it
1: yes I can't find any other, talking uh, about that, but just I can't find any other explanation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she says, nigga, for the thrill of it,
0: for the fucking thrill of it.
1: She says it for the thrill of it because she knows yes. she yeah. knows ex- she knows there's a boundary there and she loves crossing it. Mm-hmm. Right. And I find so many people, so many non black people have that impulse, mm-hmm. not just to say the N word, but it's just they know that there's a boundary there oh, but it feels so delicious to cross it, right? You know, that's why these, I mean, all these things we've been talking about are why, you know, why I felt like this is an an important chapter because, like, one thing, okay, I knew, one thing I know as someone who does this work as a black man, I've heard so many women talk about, black women talk about how Black men in my position often don't partner with black women. You often find a brother in my position with a white woman. Yeah. And I know that Dr. King almost did.
0: Yeah.
1: I think Obama almost did. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And I have thought about that for years. Like, Mm. you can't do that, Andre. You know? Like, you know, and it's not like it's a huge temptation, you know? (laughs) But I but it's something that sometimes for some people it is, right? Some people it is. And and Mm -hmm. oftentimes when they do that, you know, there's 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 like real, like there's explicit misogynoir around Mm -hmm. it, right? Mm -hmm. Um but I have been very cognizant of, you know, who I partner with matters. Now this I also said if black love finds you, hold on to it. Because I also realized, you know, hey there's a whole bunch of variables in finding a partner. So I may not, but I just know that I just knew that it was important. I know that it is important and wanted to to talk about it as best as I could.
0: I love that you had the courage to talk about it. There is a lot of nuance there, right? And and, and so um, and this isn't this isn't a chapter or a book or even a conversation about interracial relationships. This isn't about that, but it's to me about the fact that black love, it really is, sometimes I see it as an act of resistance. For sure Sometimes I see it as when you see people who are black and in love, and it's like, yeah fucking white supremacy didn't win <laughs> because that is the first thing that they took from us
1: yeah yeah yeah
0: the destruction of of everything that made us who we are they took it away yeah and w- the first thing was let's snatch these people let's tear them apart mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. make them turn against each other yeah they won't know who's related to who we're taking the kids over here taking the husband over there i mean they they took everything when they enslaved our ancestors yes so when i see a black couple i'm so proud yeah so anyways i i could just really get in my feelings about that as you i'm so passionate about it
1: I feel it you know I get I'm getting chills as you talk about it because and that's why I did mention that's why I did mention that black love is I think is a form of reparations you know I I don't think that it has to be a mandate for everyone but I do feel like it is a form of reparations and the one thing I want to add to this is you know within the context you know I wrote a book about movement building is that um I, I wanted to point out that you know 1964 or before 1964 you know you have black and white together we shall not be moved you know interracial couples getting together all that kind of stuff and then when we move into black power you know a lot of these a lot of those relationships were in turmoil because you know the the non-black partner was realizing that they still had a lot of internal work to do right um, and the black partner is waking up To just how deeply entrenched White supremacy is in America and now you're looking at your partner like man, Damn you one of them <laughs> You know like You know And that is a thing You know I notice You know I do notice sometimes You know when sometimes there's some black people They make a lot of excuses for white people You know and a lot of excuses For systemic racism and all that kind of stuff And then I go look at their partner and oh Oh I see why you're so defensive you know Um, I'm not saying that everyone is like that but there is a connection there
0: yeah there absolutely is a connection and you know I remember the years that I was in white culture Mm -hmm. way too fucking deep Mm -hmm. and I've told this story on another podcast but I remember the moment when I knew I needed to leave the white church that I was in. Uh-huh. We were having we had this thing called life groups.
1: Oh, okay, I'm familiar with those.
0: And somebody out of the blue, we went from talking about the Book of Isaiah to somebody talking about saying something about Michael Jackson, and I was like, "You're not gonna sit here and talk about motherfucking Michael Jackson." <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know. And then Michael Jackson.
1: I can't even guess how they got there from the book of Isaiah. It was
0: so random. (laughs) And I said, Oh, I'm done with this group. I'm I'm fucking and that and then like around that same time the church, the pastor, in the middle of his sermon says, and you know what else? You know what else, people? Oprah, she does not love Jesus.
1: Wow.
0: I mean, it was other things that happened and I stayed silent and I didn't address it. Yeah. And even if I would have addressed it, it wouldn't have helped because I would be addressing it to people who were white and who didn't feel the same way that I felt. Right. I think that, you know, in our relationships with people who are non-Black, sometimes, um, unless they've proven themselves, you know, otherwise, Yeah. we we compromise our voice.
1: Absolutely.
0: When you stopped being the respectable, respectable black man, Uh black person, Uh what did you gain?
1: Oh, my gosh. I mean, so much. Right. Like and the whole book, you you see that journey. Right. Like I think (laughs) like I mentioned Rachel earlier. Right. Rachel know me since I was nine years old. So. There was there was a very young Andre that was very fiery and snappy and I would listen if I thought you were wrong I don't care how old you are <laughs> like I'm going to tell you yeah <laughs> And then there are all those years where I wasn't, right? So I I mentioned Rachel because the other day when I posted online, some of y'all are in denial. You know that I wrote about you in this book. Talk about some crazy. Congratulations. Rachel hit me up. She called me. It was like, I see you feeling like yourself again. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Because... I remember the day in the summer of 2016 where I said, you know what? I'm not, tipping, to- I'm not tiptoeing around these white people's feelings anymore because it's not working. <laughs> All it's doing is, t- is exhausting me. Why am I online every day writing like essays on Facebook? in the comments trying to convince people of things that they don't even want to know (laughs) oh my gosh i feel so liberated from having to do that i don't feel any obligation to explain anything someone wrote someone posted something on instagram the other day because i did i had an event with linda sarsour they said you would have an event with lit with uh, anti-semite like that i just blocked them oh it's so liberating i didn't respond i didn't argue with them i didn't send them a dm i just blocked them i didn't know i could do that eight years ago right so that's one thing is just there's so much space so much energy you know for me to just focus on the things that i want to do you know
0: there were these opportunities where when someone would disagree with you you would say well hey let's have a conversation yeah and then they wouldn't fucking show up for the conversation
1: yeah
0: and that happened multiple times yeah and and i just felt like i was i felt so just proud of you when you stopped
1: right yeah
0: having the comp like yeah quit offering quit
1: I don't invite them to do that no more. That's for able. the most, for the most part, for, I, mean, I gotta know you. Like my my cousin Alicia, she she used to ask me, "Is that one of your white people though?" Yeah. <laughs> like you know, is it is it one of your white people? Because if it's not one of your white people, you ain't gotta worry about that. That's it and I did stop doing that and so that has just created so much freedom and it's so good for your mental health like to stop talking with people who are trying to get you to deny what you already know right? We already know (laughs) that this is a white supremacist system that we live in we know that we do not have to have that conversation with people anymore so I mean that has been so much I've gained so much hope about the prospects for black liberation because I'm not I don't have the static I don't have the static of white people bringing their whitewash perspective into the conversation No, you know what you wouldn't understand the, the level of determination and the scope of organization that has to be done to go into this because it's you are not affected by the problem in the way that we are you know so yes of course you think that if you just talk to this person or just cast your vote here or there whatever things yeah because you don't know what you're talking about right so we're just going to uh, i compared it years ago i compared it to like us we 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 we're surgeons in in the in the in the OR, you know, we're operating. Somebody comes in there that doesn't know about surgery. like, you can't cut that man with a knife. You're going to kill him. Like, listen, get that man out of here. He don't know. He's not a surgeon, <laughs> right? Yeah. So there's so much freedom in that. And then, so that's the hope, right? Because that's also those white people were trying to be enforcers of that colonial system that wants to, per- that wants to keep that pervasive culture of hopelessness and resignation. Right. So they want to come in and tell you that not even God will help you. Right. Yeah. In a breakup of why Jesus chapter, I talk about that, you know, there is also just, you know, being able to f- focus on connecting with m- my, my, my roots, my ancestors, right. Like to Try to do my own decolonization work, you know, instead of constantly being ensnared in trying to help white people become better, right? Like, you know, when I'm home in Atlanta with my family, we chat Pato, we chat Pato all day. Told my cousin, I don't want to sound like no colonizer again, you know, I don't want to sound. I I genuinely don't want to sound American. I don't even want to be talking the way I'm talking right now. You know, want okay. people, but talk you know, speak English so people can know what say. You know, but you know, and that that has been really freeing and liberating for me.
0: I want to read from my favorite chapter. Okay. <laughs> Can you, will, will you bear with me while I read just the last part of it before we, before we end? And Of course. Okay. So you say we can't talk about Black freedom in any comprehensive way without talking about Black love. Black partnership is inherently subversive in a world that tells us we are undesirable and unworthy of love. Black love is audacious in a world built to prevent us from self-love. That, which, that we would choose to love one another. Black family is resistance in a world that fears Black people in groups. Black partnership is reparations in a world that we were once forbidden to marry. Where our families were systemically broken apart and familial ties were regarded as for whites only. For all of these reasons, Black liberation is inherently tied to Black love. So no shade at all to those who have found love outside of the race. But if black love finds you, you do your best to hold on to it. So I just wanted to read the part that you referenced earlier. And I have all of that underlined. So I was like, I know exactly where that's at. Uh. (laughs) Um, For anyone listening, I want you to get this book. For anybody that's under a rock and they don't know where to find the book they don't know what where to find you da, da, can you just share how people can locate you on social media and where they can yeah. purchase your
1: book i mean the best place to find me is at my website andrehenry.co you can connect to all the other things there email is social media and the book is anywhere books are sold really you so i mean if you can go to the major retailers that definitely have it. But a lot of there's been a lot of indie support, too. So if there's a local independent bookstore near you, they, they might have it.
0: Andre, thank you so much. Uh, this conversation about Black Love and about your book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep. Um, it just made me so happy today. And, and thank you. I feel honored that you would have this conversation with me.
1: Oh, it's my honor. Yeah. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much for listening to When We Speak. Follow me on Instagram at Tasha Hunter, LCSW. If you haven't done so yet, please rate, review, and follow me on iTunes and share it on your social media. If you want a copy of my book, What Children Remember, it is available on Amazon. Until next time.